A very good morning to you all. Um, just interested before we start to see what churches are here. Um, I think there's quite a few Presbyterians. Um, Presbyterians? Okay. Uh, Baptists? <laughs> um, then forgive me, now I go blank. Other options? Church of Ireland? Okay. Uh, New Frontiers? Anybody else? Now, now we Baptists are not, are not really liturgical people. Um, Church of Ireland probably is the most liturgical amongst us. But one of the aspects of liturgy that I've been learning to appreciate is the statement after reading, this is the word of God. And, and those of you who at least know something of Church of Ireland, Church of England, Anglican, what is the response? Thanks be to God. <laughs> now, I sometimes think that the ideal liturgy is Anglican liturgy said by a Pentecostal. <laughs> because, you know, the Anglicans have got it nailed 100%. This is the word of God. But the Pentecostals have got it nailed 100% in terms of how you should say that. This is the word of God. And how should you respond? Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Can I just remind you of that? Never forget that this is, it's almost hard to say it, God's word. And we should just be saying, oh Lord, thank you so much. We've got your word. And that will become even more apparent when we get to chapter 8. Where the worst thing about this whole book, the whole book's message is where God says there's going to be a famine for hearing the word of God. What a terrible time. Please would you turn to the person next to you, if you were here yesterday, and tell them something about Amos, and specifically Amos 1 and 2. I'm going to give you one minute, and then I'm going to ask you to report back what your friend told you. They may not be your friend afterwards, but they're your friend to start off with. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Right. Um, Those of you who are newcomers here, We are going to show off how much we learned last night. Now, for those of you who were here last night, this is when you either make me or break me. My self-image is tenuous at the best of times, all right? So if you get it wrong, I'm going to be shattered. All right, so here we go. What do we learn about Amos, especially chapters 1 and (laughs) 2? Come, start us off. He's a sheep herder. Lived in Judah, right? Say again? But he spoke to Israel. Actually spoke, not wrote. Spoke, and then it was written down. Did you have something in the back? He was smart. Okay, he might have been a sheep herder, but he's no dummy, right? No country boy. Yep. In the Zimbabwe sense. What else? Say again? Yeah, they're like that. <laughs> okay, beginning of his message, hits the nations all around. Can we quickly try and get them? There's six and then one and then Israel. Six. Moab, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, not Sidon, Edom, 
and the Ammonites, then gets to Judah, then gets to Israel. So very deliberately, God starts off because, of course, who is, it's Amos speaking, but it is the, the lion roaring. Remember that. It's Amos speaking, but it's the lion roaring. And as the lion roars, he roars against these six surrounding nations. Israel goes, yes. Then he hits Judah and Israel two fists this time. Yes. And then he says, and I'm going to talk to you. From chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 9, I'm going to talk to you, Israel. Because my, my roaring is actually not anything to do with them. It's everything to do with you. Anything else from those first two chapters? Yeah. Excellent, excellent. So it's not just, um, it's not just, hold on a second, let me make sure I get my preposition right. It's not just despite the fact they were privileged, they were judged, but it's because of the fact they were privileged, they were judged. Yeah, and that's quite sobering. <laughs> so it's not just despite, but it's because of. I've chosen you, therefore I will punish you. Anything else? How does the book divide up? Because remember, we're looking at the town, take you up into a high, uh, there's, there's, Mark showed me, what's that hill? Uh, that, uh, not, not there, I mean that far away that you pointed to me, you said, it takes you half an hour to get to the top and you can look down and you can see the whole of the city. Cave Hill, all right? So you can get up to the top of Cave Hill and you can look down and you can see all of Belfast and get a sort of sense of its structure. What is the structure of Amos as a town? A351. Okay, A351. Eight, three, five, one, Oracle of Salvation. And it's wonderful that it ends with the Oracle of Salvation. It's ultimately a message that ends with blessing. That's fundamentally... Um, predominantly about judgment. All right, let's uh, have a look at the first two sermons of rebuke. You'll notice in, my, in the notes there, after the eight oracles of judgment, we come to the three sermons of rebuke. And they're introduced by this phrase, hear this word. So three times over, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 1, hear this word, hear this word, Hear this word. So that introduces a new section, uh, a sermon about God's judgment. And I'm going to just lay this out in three simple ways. First of all, there is the certainty of God's judgment. That's chapter 3, the certainty of God's judgment. The certainty of God's judgment. Chapter 4, I've chosen the word the scariness of God's judgment. It's a bit of a childish word, but it fits, all right? And it also alliterates. The scariness of God's judgment. It's really jolly scary. When God gets cross. And then finally, in chapters 5 and 6, the seriousness of God's judgment. So that's going to be the, the threefold framework we're going to use this morning in the two sessions. The certainty of God's judgment, the scariness of God's judgment, and the seriousness of God's judgment. And I'm going to lay out six principles from the first sermon, which is the certainty of God's judgment. Principle number one as we begin the passage is that with privilege comes responsibility. With privilege comes responsibility. It is because God's people are his chosen people. It is because they are his favored people. God will punish them. We find that in verse 2. And it's, verse 2 is one of those verses that you sort of think, surely you've got this wrong. 
You only have I chosen among the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. I've chosen you specially, therefore I'm going to punish you particularly. Think about us as Christians, how privileged, how honored we are to be God's children, God's people. With such privilege comes great responsibility. So principle number one is that with privilege comes responsibility. Principle number two, he lays out from verse two down to verse seven. And it is the principle that sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Number one, with privilege comes responsibility. But number two, sin has consequences. If you are the people of God and you're sinning, sin has consequences. Now, if you look down at that list from verse three down to verse seven, do two men walk together unless they have an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest? When he has no prey, does a young lion growl from his den unless he captures something? Does a bird fall into a trap if there's no bait? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing? When a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in the city, has not the Lord done it? There's seven of them, and they're all cause and effect. Do you notice that? They're all cause and effect. Uh, why do two men walk together? Because they have an appointment. Why does the lion roar in the forest? Because he has no prey. Why does the young lion... And you go all the way through. What Amos is doing is he's showing that there's a cause and effect relationship between all of these events. And will you notice as well that they get worse and worse and worse as, as you go down. Walking together, it's not too bad. A lion roaring over there, it's not too bad. But he's got to pray now, in verse 4. Bird falling in a trap, trap springing up from the earth, trumpet blown in the city, calamity in the city. You notice that this cause and effect um, series is getting stronger and stronger and worse and worse as Amos is going through. So remember, don't, don't lose sight of the big picture. Amos comes along and he says, God is roaring. God is saying, I've chosen you. With privilege comes responsibility. And listen, there's cause and effect. If you're going to sin, if you're going to sin, God is going to judge you. Sin has consequences. We don't like thinking too much about our sin. We don't like thinking too much about the consequences of sin. And maybe we as New Testament believers ought to start thinking a little bit more. And I say this carefully, but I say it, dear friends. And if bad things are happening, if things are going wrong, one of the things sometimes we've got to stop and do as Christians and say, is to say, what is the cause of this? Now, I don't believe necessarily that just because bad things happen, you've done some sin. But clearly here, God establishes the principle that when his people sin, he steps in. He's not just a God, a deistic God who's wound up the world and wound up you as a Christian and sort of puts you down like a clockwork mouse to run all over the floor as he watches from a distance. He's controlling everything. And for Israel, he was controlling everything. And he was saying, if you sin, there are going to be consequences. What is the third principle that Amos sets out in this first sermon of rebuke? It is the principle, verses 7 and 8, that you need to take God's warning seriously. You need to take God's warning seriously. You need to take God's warning seriously. Amos tells us in verse 7 that, you know, God reveals what he does. I mentioned yesterday that one of the wonderful lessons of this book is that God speaks. Imagine if God didn't speak. The one thing worse than the roaring of a lion is the silence of a lion. So if God didn't speak, we'd be in trouble. So Amos is saying in verse 7, listen, if God is going to do something, he's going to reveal that. And he's going to reveal that to his servants, the prophets. Just remind me from chapter 2, what had they done to the prophets? They silenced them. Remember, Nazarites, hey guys, have a beer. Okay, they compromised the Nazarites and they said to the prophets, you guys shut up. We don't want to hear what God has to say. 
Amos is saying, listen, if God is going to do something, he's going to tell his prophets. He's going to reveal to them what he's going to do. And then notice verse 8. Remember verse 2 of chapter 1. A lion, the Lord roars from Zion. Verse 8, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Remember, Amos is a sheep herder. The worst sound a sheep herder can hear, maybe the second worst sound, <laughs> a sheep herder can hear is the sound of the roaring of a lion. What's the second worst sound? The silence after he's finished roaring. You got that? That's the second worst sound. The silence after he finishes roaring. But you see Amos at the stage, the lion is still roaring. God is still warning. And as far as Amos is concerned, listen, when a lion, when a lion, when a lion roars, you better be afraid. You're a dummy not to be afraid when a lion roars. And he goes on to say, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And I think, yeah, Amos is maybe saying, he's maybe saying to Israel, listen, you guys might not listen when God roars. Well, you're a bunch of dummies. But let me tell you, when God speaks, I have to prophesy. I've got to, I've got to tell you what God is saying. So principle number three, it makes sense to take God seriously. Principle number four, sin in God's people is worse than sin amongst the heathen. Sin in God's people is worse than sin amongst the heathen. This is the sermon of rebuke. He's now rebuking Israel, trying to show Israel their sin and, and implore them to turn back and to listen to the roaring. Sin amongst God's people is worse than sin amongst the heathen. Proclaim in the city, in the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves in the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. What is he saying? What's he talking about? Well, who is Ashdod? Ashdod is a city, one of the Philistine cities. Egypt, of course, uh, Israel's great long-standing enemy. The Philistines and the Egyptians were renowned for two things. Number one, opposition against Israel and Judah. Number two, cruel and fierce and warlike. Now what God is doing in verse 9, and this is, this is profoundly significant. He's saying, I'm going to take that enemy of Israel there, those fierce, cruel, horrible Philistines, and I'm going to call them and say, I want you to come here and stand on the mountain of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. Those Egyptians there who for the longest time have been fighting against Israel, I'm going to call them and ask them to stand, and I'm going to say to them, just have a look at Israel and see how wicked Israel is, my people. Do you see what Amos is doing? Yes, no? Remember, I'm a head reader, not a mind reader. So. Do you see what Amos is doing? Mm. <laughs> well, this means you're confused, all right? It's a little bit like Isaiah. What Isaiah does is he calls the mountains and the hills to be witnesses against Judah. What, what Amos is doing is he's calling the Philistines and the Egyptians to be witnesses against Israel. It's like he went down to the local prison and he pulled out the life sentence rapist and the, the, the multiple murderer and he said, hey, listen, I want, you, I want you to come down to ex-Baptist church and just have a look and see how terrible my people are. And there they are singing their songs and there they are giving their tithes and they look okay on the outside, but on the inside there's wickedness. That's what he's doing in verse 9. He's taking these two wicked nations and he's saying, you think you guys are bad? There's nothing as bad as this. Israel, my people, are sinning against me. And God's description of his people is in verse 10. They do not know how to do what is right. 
It's ridiculous. God's people, they don't know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. They hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Principle number five from this passage from the sermon is God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is certain. From verse 11, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, therefore, therefore, there's a connection. Because you're so wicked that I'm calling the Philistines and the Egyptians to witness how wicked you are. And they're going to say, I can't believe any nation could be that wicked. I mean, all we do is rip open pregnant women. But look what they're doing. All we do is perform war crimes. But look what they're doing. Get the picture there. Because of that, says God in verse 11, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. He's referring there to Assyria. Assyria is going to come and they're going to conquer. They're going to destroy Israel in just 40 years' time. Verse 12 is a difficult verse to uh, interpret, apparently. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but just as I've looked at the commentaries, there are two possible interpretations of verse 12. Verse 12, thus says Jehovah, just as a shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Now, the two possible interpretations of this. Number one, this picture implies that from this judgment of God, verse 11, I'm going to judge you. The nation is going to come and, and, and judge you. So, so possibility number one is that there's going to be a remnant. As the lion pulls away that lamb, remember there's the Amos picture, the sheep herder picture. As the lion pulls away that lamb, the shepherd's going to be able to grab at least a couple of legs. There's going to be something that remains afterwards. And maybe the, the end of verse 12, a little corner of a bed and a little cover of a couch. We don't have the whole thing, but at least we've got a little bit that's left over. So one possibility is there's going to be a remnant that will remain. And throughout the theme of Amos, there's going to be, this, there's going to be little, glimmers of, little glimmers of hope, little glimmers of mercy, little glimmers of possibility. The, the blanket is, you're in trouble, God's judgment is coming. But there's going to be these offers of mercy, these calls to repentance, and maybe there's a little remnant. It's a little bit like Mark saying that this is, a, this is good weather. Now what he means by that is there are little patches of sunshine. Okay, and that, that might be one interpretation. There's a little patch of sunshine in the whole dark cloud-covered sky. All right? So that's the first interpretation of verse, verse, uh, verse 12. But the second interpretation is this. This might be a very sarcastic comment from Amos. Remember I mentioned that Amos in actual fact is no <clears throat> country boy. He's a really clever guy, like most Irish country boys are. But, but what he's saying is that, uh, you see, in those days, if a, if a shepherd was looking after some sheep and came back and said, really sorry, a lion got the sheep. You're right, <laughs> a lion got the sheep. You sold it, right? You got any proof that the lion got the sheep? Well, yes, I have. I've, I managed to save these few scraps that the lion didn't eat. You got that picture? So you see, now verse 12 doesn't mean there's going to be a remnant that remain. Verse 12 is actually saying there is no rescue. There's actually, all there is is evidence of the fact that Israel has been taken. Israel has been destroyed. And there, um, one of the commentators I, I wrote, James May, he, he, he says that the last part of verse 12 shouldn't be seen as a corner of a couch. Thank goodness we got the corner of the couch. But in actual fact, you can translate it in this way. So shall the people of Israel be rescued. That's sarcastic. So shall they be rescued. They're not going to be rescued. In actual fact, we're just going to pull out evidence of the fact that no rescue came. That's what the shepherd does. 
He pulls out this little ear, the little, the little pieces of meat, and says, listen, I couldn't rescue the lamb. There is no rescue. And then he translates the last part, the ones who loll in Samaria on splendid beds and couches from Damascus. So one of two ways of interpreting verse 12. Either there's going to be a little remnant, hallelujah, or there's going to be no rescue whatsoever. And God's judgment is going to fall. Now either way, one thing is certain. God's judgment is certain. It's going to happen. You're going to sin. God's going to judge. Cause and effect. It will happen. Principle number six, moving on from verse 13. God judges his people for two things. God judges his people for two things. Sin against himself and sin against others. God judges his people for two things. Sin against himself and sin against others. Let's just pick up verses 13, 14, and 15. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Now it's interesting to see how God describes his judgment here. He speaks about acting against two buildings. All right? In verse 14 and 15, he speaks about acting against two buildings. What is the first building he's going to act against? Say again, sorry. Um, the altars of Bethel. So the first building is the shrine, the, the, the pseudo-temple in Bethel. The second building is, verse 15, building in a sort of group sense. Say again, sir? Houses of ivory, or the winter houses, or the, the houses of the people's comfort. So we must see here, very deliberately, God is going to act, number one, against the house where they practice worship, verse 14, and is going to act against the house where they enjoy their comfort and luxury, verse 15. God is going to act against them in terms of their sins against himself because he's going to destroy the shrine, the temple at Bethel, and God is going to act against their sin against other people because he's going to destroy their homes, which are the places where they enjoy their luxury and their wealth, and it's their luxury and their wealth at the expense of the poor. Now, let's quickly go through those. Number one, I will punish the altars of Bethel. Now, you may remember, give you a reference if you want to just jot it down, look later. 1 Kings 12, verse 25. 1 Kings 12, 25. You remember when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he was the first Jeroboam. He rebelled against uh, the house of David, and, and he took the, the, the northern tribes, and, and he seceded, and they formed Israel. But Jeroboam had one great concern the people in these tribes are going to keep going back to Jerusalem to worship. And when they go back to Jerusalem, their hearts are going to be turned back to Judah. And I'm going to have a problem. What is this solution? Can you remember? So you've got the, the southern kingdom here, Judah with, with Jerusalem and the temple. These ten tribes break away. Jeroboam thinks if they keep taking these religious trips down to Jerusalem, I'm in trouble because their hearts are going to go back. What am I going to do? What was the solution? Build two altars, right? One in Bethel down here. And one in? Dan. 
Right, so there's two altars here in Israel. You no longer have to go down to Jerusalem. You can worship Baal. Yes or no? You can worship Baal, B-A-A-L. That's my Zimbabwe accent. Baal. Baal. Who would you worship at those two altars? Easy answer, don't worry. Just say it. Who would you worship at those two altars? <laughs> Promise it's an easy answer. Trust me. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go and have your coffee early? <laughs> Yahweh, all right. Yeah. Yahweh. So he's not saying let's turn to another God. He's just saying let's worship in another place. That's not so bad, is it? So what he does is he sets up these alternate places of worship. Bethel and Dan. Now God is acting against Bethel. Now God is acting against the shrine. It's quite interesting that God says, I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off. You see, this was the, this was the place where they practiced their false religion. Remember, two sins that God is against his people. Number one, false religion. Number two, social injustice. He's dealing here with false religion. And they worshipped at Bethel. They worshipped Jehovah. They worshipped Yahweh. But they worshipped at Bethel. And God says, I will cut off the horns of the altar. Can anybody tell me anything about the horns of the altar? Say again? Okay, and if you got your hands on the horns of the altar, what did that give you? What did that? Protection. All right, there's two instances um, in the Bible. Again, let me give you references. 1 Kings 150, 1 Kings 228. Two men, the second was Joab, I forget the first one, Adonijah was the first one. They fled into the temple in Jerusalem and they held on to the, the horns of the altar. And as soon as you touch the horns of the altar, that's, that's sanctuary. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean fans? You know, parlay? You know, parlay? Oh, you're safe. Okay. Grab hold of the horns of the altar, you're safe. What does God do with the horns of the altar? Verse 14. What does God do with the horns of the altar? Breaks them off. So what does that mean? You see, there's nothing to grab onto. There's no security to be found in the sanctuary. See, You see how clever Amos is as he gives this prophecy. You're going to go running into your false worship and you're going to grab hold of the... Where have the horns gone? God says, I'm going to smite them. You're going to have absolutely no confidence and no security from this false worship that you're practicing. And secondly, God says, verse 15, I'm going to smite not just the place where you worship, but the place where you live. I'm going to smite the winter house and the summer house, and the houses of ivory will perish, and the great houses will come to an end. These are the luxurious places. The people were wealthy. Remember, I pointed out to you that this was a time of incredible prosperity for the people of Israel. They knew God's blessing through Jeroboam II, this wicked king. I mean, things were really good. The economy was strong. The building industry was just thriving. There was money to spend. These were good days. But they were good days at the expense of the poor. They were good days accompanied by social injustice. They were good days accompanied by false worship. And God says, those wonderful buildings you've built, I'll tell you something, it's going to knock them down. And I'm going to destroy them. Now, just very quickly before we go to the second sermon, what about us? Because remember that wonderful song yesterday, God uh, spoke through Jesus, God spoke through his word, God is speaking by his spirit. Is that, did I get the three verses right? Something like that, right? Okay, he's speaking now. 
We've got to remember, Amos is not just talking about God's people. Amos is talking to God's people. We need to challenge ourselves. We need to ask ourselves. We need to hold up the mirror of the world. James says, you look in the mirror, you turn away. Have you done anything in what you've seen? Have you just said, Sheikh, what a rotten bunch Israel was? Hypocritical worship, no care for the poor, living in comfort, not thinking about others. The idea is, do I see myself there? What about your worship? What about my worship? What about your comfort? What about your concern for the poor? This is the certainty of God's judgment in chapter 3. Let's have a look in the last 15 minutes, and I think we'll be able to make this on time. What about the scariness of God's judgment against Israel? The last two verses of chapter 3 have introduced us to the sins that God intends to deal with, the house of worship and the house of comfort. Now, in these chapters, these sins are set forth again, and the seriousness of the people continuing to sin, even in the face of God's calls for repentance. That's what's going to be developed in this, in this sermon. God, God's going to call them to repent, but they're just going to keep on sinning. Now notice, first of all, uh, point A there, which is verses 1 to 5. God sets forth the sins of his people. In verses 1 to 3, he lays out the sin of luxury and social injustice. Luxury and social injustice. Nothing wrong with luxury necessarily. Well, that's dangerous. Nothing wrong with wealth necessarily. But when it's wealth connected to social injustice or wealth connected to hypocritical worship, you're in trouble. Let me read these verses. Hear this word. Remember, that's the way the sermon is introduced. So there's three sermons. Hear this word. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan. Now, there's a nice phrase to learn. Next time you're talking about some people you don't like, particularly if they're ladies. You cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon. See, what Amos does here, what the Lord does here, because remember, it's the, it's the prophet who speaks, but it's the Lord who roars. It's the word of God coming through Amos. God addresses the women of Samaria. They are the cows of Bashan. They're the wealthy women. Now, Bashan was a very fertile area. It was famed for its pasture. And the cattle in Bashan were, were huge. Those of you who know Psalm 22, the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me, the, the song from the cross, the song of Jesus on the cross. Bulls, fierce bulls of Bashan. Bashan was, was noted as a place where you breed your cattle, either big fierce bulls or big fat beefy cows. That's the picture here. But these women were oppressing the poor because you read down in verse 1 that they are cows of Bashan, well-fed cows of Bashan, because they oppress the poor and they crush the needy and all they can think about is, bring now that we may drink. So you can just get this picture of them lolling in their luxury and saying to their husbands, come now. Bring us more to, eat, to drink. What is God going to do to these people who are living in luxury without any care for the poor? The Lord is sworn by his holiness. And it's always kind of scary when God swears. It's always kind of scary when God swears. The Lord is sworn by his holiness. You know, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks. And what God does, and remember Amos, he's a sheep herder, he's an agricultural guy, he knows about these things. He's a country boy. 
They're going to take you away with meat hooks. You, you're fat cows. And you're going to be like fattened cows. What do you do with fattened cows? You kill them and eat them. You're going to be killed. And you're going to be eaten. The days are coming. You're going to be taken away with meat hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. Verse 3, you're going to go out through breaches in the walls. In a Samaria surrounded by walls. There's this picture constantly in the book of Amos. You'll find this theme of, of, Amos, of, of Israel trusting her citadels, trusting her strongholds, trusting her fortresses, trusting her walls, not trusting Jehovah. And Jehovah says, you know, you fat cows, the walls are going to be breached. The enemy is going to come in. And you're going to be taken out with meat hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. I wonder if the picture there is, you know, the last of you is going to be so little of you, they don't need meat hooks to carry you. Just fish hooks will suffice. There's going to be so little of you let over. And you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. He has the sin of luxury and social injustice. Verses 4 and 5, God speaks about the sin of false religion and false worship. False religion and false worship, verses 4 and 5. And now what Amos does, being a, a man who's able to use language so well, is he sort of mimics the priests of Bethel. Because Bethel not only had its own shrine, it, has its own, it had its own priests. And so he mimics them, as though he was a priest calling them to come to worship. Enter Bethel. Come to this place of worship and transgress. Come to Gilgal. Gilgal was another holy place. Multiply transgressions. He's saying, come to these holy places that are set aside for worship and sin. And sin. Um, can anybody, anybody bold enough to tell me what church they come from? Because you know I'm going to use it against you. So That's why I'm saying you've got to be bold. You know, I stay for a week, so I don't mind waiting. <laughs> come on, somebody trust me enough to tell me what church you come from. Calvary Baptist. What, 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 what Amos is saying is, you come to Calvary Baptist and sin. Come to Calvary Baptist and transgress. That's the force of verse 4. Come to the place where you people practice worship, and when you come, you know what you're going to do? All you're going to do is sin. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Make them known for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. God is being so sarcastic here. You know, you guys just carry on your worship, carry on your worship, carry on your worship, carry on your worship. You think nothing's wrong. You're going to church every single Sunday. You're part of the praise and worship group. You lead a home group during the week. It just goes on and on and on. But you know what? You're living hypocritically. You've got the idols of your heart. You've got other things that you're trusting instead of me. That's his message to Israel. That's his message to us. So God sets forth the sins of his people in verses 1 to 5 and then verses 6 to 11. God reminds them of his attempts to bring them to repentance. Verses 6 to 11, God reminds them of his attempts to bring them to repentance on your page, on your notebook. It's at the bottom of page 8 there. And you'll notice a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Five times there's this phrase, Yet you have not returned to me. Yet you have not returned to me. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. You have not returned to me. What God does is he reminds them, I've done several things to you and you didn't return to me. Let me just summarize them. Verse 6, I sent a food shortage. Verse 6, I sent a food shortage. You didn't return to me. Verse 7 and 8, lack of rain. You didn't return to me. 
Verse 8, disease upon the crops. You didn't return to me. Sorry, that was verse 9. You didn't, disease upon the crops, you didn't return to me. Verse 10, a plague, then war and defeat. You didn't return to me. And then verse 11, destruction. You didn't return to me. You've got the same sort of uh, cause but no effect. It's the same cause and effect, but there's no effect. You see, God is acting and he's acting and he's acting because he wants to produce some sort of effect, but there's no effect. What is the effect he wants to produce? What is the effect he's trying to produce? Turn back to me. Turn back to me. I'm calling you back to myself. But when he calls, he doesn't really call gently, does he? And it's quite remarkable as you look at those, those five things that God does. They increase in pressure as, as you go along. They get worse and worse. First, a food shortage. Meh, okay, not too bad. You can get food from somewhere else. Lack of rain. Well, there's no, there's no um, rain, so there's no food anywhere. Then there's a blight upon any crops that might be there. And then there's a plague. Then there's war and defeat of war. And then there's complete destruction. Okay. Here's, here, here you'll... Show me if you're still with me. What is the lion doing in those five, in those five, uh, you didn't return, those five things that God has done? What is the lion doing? He's roaring louder and louder and louder and louder and louder because what does he want the people to do? He wants them to hear his roaring and change. And yet God's conclusion is, yet you did not return to me. You see wonderful mercy here in this chapter. It's just remarkable. Israel. This is Israel. If you know the story of Israel, they did not have a single godly king throughout their whole history. And yet at the end of that long line of wicked kings, God is still saying, why didn't you return to me? I want you to return to me. God is remarkably gracious. Why is he roaring? He's roaring to bring his people to repentance. Remember how um, Amos started chapter 3? The lion has roared. How did he finish that off? Can anybody remember? The lion has roared. Who will not fear? Who will not fear? And that's the same thing here. God roars over and over and over and over and over again. But his people don't fear. Can I just quickly ask you a question? Have you ever heard God roaring? And do you know as you sit here that maybe God is roaring louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and yet you do not return to him? See, it's a message for us. It's not just a message for Israel. And then we notice the final point here in this particular sermon. Verses 12 and 13. God warns them about who he is. He reminds them of who he is. This God whose roar they are disregarding. We develop this in the next passage a little bit. Therefore, thus I will do to you. I'm in verse 12. So verses 6 to 11, I haven't read that, but basically that's five times over. I did this, you didn't return. 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 I roared louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, and you did not listen to me roaring. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you. And then the last sentence in verse 12 is where we're getting to. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. 
Now, those of you who are here at the beginning of Amos, how would Israel have reacted at the beginning of Amos's prophecy to prepare to meet your God? Okay, so let me ask that again before anybody answers. Those of you here at the beginning of Amos, when Amos starts his prophecy, so let's say he hasn't got to the end of chapter 1, he's just working his way through chapter 1, going after all of these nations all the way around. How would Israel have responded to this Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Say again. Confidently. Confidently. Say again, sorry. Triumphantly. This is absolutely great. We're longing to meet God. By this point, how is Israel feeling? Absolutely terrified. So what Amos is basically saying here is, the lion roared really loud. Did you hear that last loud roar? And you didn't do anything. Israel, what do you hear now? Wow, there's silence. Where is the lion now? You prepare to meet your God. You see what's happening here? The, the weight of what God is doing and the weight of the seriousness of disregarding the roaring love of God means that meeting God is not a good thing. And he closes the sermon by just reminding them, and I'll make a comment about this at the beginning of the next session, who this God is who you're about to meet. Let me just describe this lion. Behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind. And declares to man what are his thoughts. God speaks to us. He makes dawn into darkness. Will you notice that? Not darkness into dawn. He makes dawn into darkness. He treads on the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name. The sermon ends off with God reminding them who he is. This God whose roar they are disregarding. And this God whom soon they are to meet. Israel, when you know what he is like, and when you think for a few moments of how you're living, do you really want to meet him face to face? That's how Amos finishes his second sermon. We have one minute to go before caffeine time. I'm going to ask you to use that minute to quietly think and quietly pray. And then in exactly one minute's time, I will briefly close. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Oh, Father, speak to us, we pray. Even if it means speaking to us in a frightening roar, please speak to us. And Matthew 11 tells us that we're not going to be able to hear unless you enable us to hear. So please enable us. For Jesus' sake and for the sake of the safety of our souls. Amen. Thank you.